So Matthew 12, beginning at verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, that's Jesus, he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Before we turn to our text, we're about to uh, read about Jonah trying to flee across the sea from God and his calling. And so with that in mind, let's sing two more stanzas from Psalm 139, stanzas 4 and 5. together to the little book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. 
But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raising. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a great sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So far, our reading of our text. Brothers and sisters, It's always really interesting to see a friend or a family member or somebody that you know well in a new setting that you've never seen them in before. So I know my parents very well, of course, but I almost always saw them at home or at work. And it was wonderful seeing another side of them when they would go to a big family event or go on vacation or something like that. And likewise, it can be interesting seeing your friend or your spouse doing a great job at work or seeing a kid who's in their element, playing a game, or spending time with friends. You you know them, but you see sort of a new aspect of them, a new side of them. Well, Sinclair Ferguson, he has a wonderful commentary on Jonah that I owe a lot of insights to. And he mentions that this whole book of Jonah is sort of like a mirror. God holds up for us the picture of Jonah, and we're supposed to look and get a reflection of ourselves. But as we jump into this book, I want to encourage you Uh, Don't get lost looking at Jonah or looking at yourself reflected in him. Rather, keep your focus not so much on what this book says about Jonah or about us, but rather keep your eyes focused on what this book says about our awesome God. Because that's the point. 
We see our awesome God as he interacts with a stubborn, ungrateful prophet who isn't too different from me and isn't too different from you. Jonah chapter 1 is all about running from God and more significantly about how God responds to sinful people like us who so often run from him and from his will. So we'll explore this in three parts. First, we'll see God calls. Secondly, Jonah flees. And then thirdly, God pursues. So first of all, God calls. And the context here is very interesting. Because we only read about Jonah one other time in the Old Testament. And there we read about the situation. God has allowed Jonah to bring good news to the people of Israel. We read that in 2 Kings 14, verse 24 to 26. There we read that God had looked down on his people and seen the affliction of Israel was very bitter. And there was none to help Israel. So the Lord saved them. And that's in spite of the fact that if you read the surrounding chapters, Israel did not deserve saving at all. Israel and her king were doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It said time and time again. And yet the Lord grants them freedom and success, allowing them to expand their borders back to where uh, where they were under King David and King Solomon at the height of the empire. And in 2 Kings we read that the Lord promised he would do this, just bless his people who didn't deserve it. He promised that he would do this speaking by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai. That's the only other time we read of Jonah in the Old Testament. And this is the context for God's call to Jonah. We need to remember, the Lord is showing amazing, undeserved grace to his sinful, rebellious people, as he had done time and time again. And now, God's going to show amazing grace to sinful, rebellious people again. And so he calls out to Jonah with another message. He calls Jonah and tells him, leave Israel now and go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its evil has come up before me. And we need to realize that just hearing the word Nineveh likely would have made Jonah's skin start to crawl. Nineveh was an important city in the notorious Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians were Israel's fierce enemies for much uh, of history. They had an empire 30 times the size of Israel, and they were known for being absolutely ruthless. One historian writes, Assyria was the world's first great empire. This was held together by two factors, their superior abilities in siege warfare and their reliance on sheer, unadulterated terror. The way the Assyrians would expand their territory and keep people in line was by making examples of their opponents. The closest modern equivalents we have to some of their brutal acts are terrorist groups like ISIS and Hamas. And so it's no surprise that Jonah is not happy to get uh, God's instructions. But first of all, can you imagine for a second going to the center of ISIS or Hamas rule and saying to them, you wicked people, you are doomed. Forty days and God is going to destroy you. This sounds crazy. It sounds like a fool's errand. It sounds like it could easily lead to Jonah being tortured and killed himself, doesn't it? But as become clear later in the book especially, the fear of calling out sin isn't what makes Jonah ignore God's call and flee from it. Instead, Jonah runs away because he understands the call very differently. 
It seems Jonah uh, was a prophet, and he knew the truth behind the words in Jeremiah 18, verse 8. There God tells us, if a nation that has been warned repents of its evil, then God will relent and not inflict on it the disaster that he had planned. So basically, God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, these wicked, ruthless people, and to give them a chance to repent. And so Jonah says, no way. Jonah knows about the atrocities of the Ninevites. He doesn't want God to forgive them. He wants God to destroy them. To Jonah, God's call seemed wrong. It seemed terrible. And we can be extremely hard on Jonah, but again, this is a mirror. And if I look hard enough, I can see a faint reflection of myself, and I wonder if you can too. This brings us right back to the fall into sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. The, the root of the problem here is the same. Satan simply sowed some seeds of doubt uh, of God's calling in the garden, leading them to believe that God's call was wrong, that he wasn't trustworthy, and actually they knew better themselves. And humanity has been doing the same thing ever since. Have you, personally, have you ever found yourself offended by what God says is good and right in his word? Have there been times when God's call for our lives seems uncomfortable or countercultural or costly? Maybe it just feels wrong. We know in God's word, he calls us to holiness and to purity. But how often instead do we say, no, I think I know better right now, Lord. God calls us to love and forgive and build up. How often do we decide in our day-to-day -day lives, I, I know better this time. It's better, it's more fun to hate and tear down and rage in this instance. For Jonah, he was appalled at the very thought of God forgiving these people. I know some people today who struggle with a similar sort of thing. They say, I love God. I'll listen to him about everything else, but that person wronged me. I cannot forgive them. I won't do it. That's not right. Or maybe it's the opposite. I think that's often what we struggle with. Often we love to take the parts of the Bible about love and peace and forgiveness and kindness. But when we come to the parts about judgment and wrath, it can be hard to embrace those and say, yes, Lord, those are good. That's right. That's what you're like, Lord, and I need to be more like that too. At times, God's calling is painful. It's uncomfortable. To our mind, it might seem wrong. Uh, I've certainly come to parts of God's word before that I've wrestled with. And I've had life circumstances I've wrestled with too. And I've asked, this, Lord, this is your will? This is right? Uh, I, I'm not sure I understand. And like Jonah, often what we want to do in those circumstances is we want to plug our ears. We want to run away. But what we should do, and what we can by God's grace, by the power of his spirit, begin to do, is to submit. To go to God and to ask him for help understanding. Saying, I don't understand this, Lord, but I know you. I trust you, Lord. Help me to understand Help me to believe. Help me to find this beautiful. Help me to obey. Jesus Christ himself, we can be comforted in the New Testament. He makes it clear. He knows that some of his teachings are hard. That they rub us the wrong way as sinful people. We can go to him and we can ask him to help us to understand. And more than understand, to make his teaching beautiful. Because we know Jesus Christ. We know that he is beautiful. And that he's trustworthy and good. And that's what Jonah should have done. To him, he thought he was so clearly right and God must have been wrong. 
But to us looking uh, in hindsight, it's so clear. Jonah was the one who was wrong. And God was so clearly right. Jonah thought the Ninevites were too evil. There was no way they deserved a shot at God's grace. But Jonah, of course, we can see from our perspective, Jonah is missing something vitally important, isn't he? What is Jonah forgetting? Jonah knew the Ninevites were evil and deserved God's judgment. What Jonah is forgetting, that he, by nature, is just as evil. He is just as deserving of God's judgment. Jonah remembers he's one of God's chosen people. He's a Hebrew, as he says, an Israelite. He's a prophet. What he's forgetting is these things are only by God's grace. God came to Israel and decided to rescue them, not because they were great, not because they were pure or holy. Were Israel pure and holy in the Old Testament? Not at all. Time and time again, Israel and the prophet showed they weren't much different from the nations around them at all, were they? But God lavished grace on them as he was doing in the time of Jonah. King after king after king. Evil, not doing what's right in the eyes of the Lord. And Lord gives grace. The Lord gives a blessing. He says to Jonah, you go to Nineveh and extend my grace to them too. And Jonah says, not a chance, Lord. No way. They don't deserve it, Lord. And he does not submit to God's call. Thankfully, Jonah was just one Old Testament prophet. And he wasn't the prophet the world was waiting for that Taylor told us so beautifully about last week. The prophet, the Messiah, the one promised from the beginning to perfectly showcase God's mercy and judgment to crush the head of the serpent and bring us back to God. That Messiah also, sort of like Jonah, strangely like Jonah, also had a difficult call. One in many ways similar to Jonah's, but even more difficult. Think about the parallels. The Son of God from heaven was called to arise and to go, to lay his glory aside and go down into enemy territory. There for Jesus Christ, there wasn't just a chance he would be rejected. Christ knew very well his message would be mocked. He would be rejected. He would be tortured and killed by his enemies. He knew he would be humiliated. And he knew as he was doing all this, that he was doing it just to save people who didn't even deserve it. People like Jonah and like you and like me. But to Jesus Christ, it was worth it. Because he wanted to save us and bring us back to God for his glory. His calling got dark and it got difficult. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus cried out in agony at the weight of his calling. He cried out, if there's any other way, Lord, please take this cup from me. The wrath of God against your sin and mine was so great. Yet not my will, but yours, he said. He knew the call was excruciatingly hard. But he knew God's call was right. And so when his tormentors came and his disciple Peter grabbed his sword to defend Jesus, Jesus said to him, Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And thank God that he did. That he told Peter, put that sword away. I need to fulfill God's calling for me. And brothers and sisters, how about us? 
The God who has redeemed us and has claimed our lives, he has many calls for us. Calls to love and justice and holiness and purity. Calls to take up our cross and follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. The call to serve others as we were served by Christ. As we hear later in the form as well. He has a special call for elders, for example. A special form of servant leadership, of putting others, putting the whole church in front of yourself. It's a hard calling. God knows. Jesus knows. Sometimes the call seems hard. Sometimes it seems painful. In Jonah's case, it seemed objectionable, if not downright impossible. But let's humbly call out like Jesus Christ himself, trusting and submitting, assured that God is good, and with the call, he will supply the strength that we need. He knows we don't have it on our own. Unfortunately, in Jonah's case, when God calls, we see Jonah flees. That's our second point. God says, get up and go to Nineveh. And immediately Jonah gets up, but he goes somewhere else. If you look at verse 3 of our text, you'll see where. There we read that Jonah went to flee to Tarshish. He found a ship going to Tarshish, and so he went with them to Tarshish. Just a little hint for reading the Bible. If they say it three times, they really want you to know what they're talking about. If they mention it three times, maybe it's worth looking up. He wants us to know he's going to Tarshish. Our best guess, we don't know for sure. Our best guess is Tarshish was at the very far end of the Mediterranean Sea, uh, the southern coast of Spain. And so to give you a rough sense uh, of the distances that we're talking about here, if you're in Chilliwack, uh, that's like God calling you and telling you to go to Prince George. And so right away you get up and you hop in your car and you drive straight down to Mexico City. In a sense, that's what's going on here. It's worse, though, because for Jonah, this is essentially the furthest away in the opposite direction he could possibly go. He was told to go uh, a little bit east. If he'd gone any further west, as one commentator says, he would have discovered Canada. There was nowhere else to go. He went as far as he could, the opposite direction. So the author wants us to know where he is going, as far away as possible. And he also wants us to know why he is going there. He mentions also three times, Again, that means it's important that he's trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. He's trying to get away. Jonah's trying to hide from God. And of course, anyone, I bet even the children around here, they know. Is there anywhere in creation you can hide from God? Of course not. There's no way the prophet Jonah actually thinks he can find a little corner that he can hide out in. In verse 9, Jonah will say to the sailors that the Lord is the God of heaven who made the sea and dry ground. He doesn't think he can actually get away from the presence of the Lord. As we'll see in the next chapter as well, in chapter 2, Jonah knows the Psalms extremely well. And so he surely knows Psalm 139, which we sang together earlier. Lord, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Jonah knows he can't actually get away from God. He is trying to get away from what Sinclair Ferguson calls the felt presence of God. God's temple, God's people, God's word and his prophets. Jonah wants to get away from them all. And again, we need to realize this is a mirror. This can sound a lot like us. Just think of it. So often when we're struggling with sin and with guilt and with doubts, 
At those times when we should draw nearer to Jesus Christ, when we need God's people more than ever, when we need God himself more than ever, that is when we withdraw. We pull away from God's felt presence. That's when we go off on our own. That's when we flee. Instead of flee to Christ, we flee from him. And that's what Jonah does as well. He rejects God's calling, and so he goes into a boat as far away as possible. And there, as soon as he's there, he falls into a deep, deep sleep. And I love what happens next, but to really get the beauty of it, you need to think about this story now from Jonah's point of view. So Jonah's just decided to run away from God and all of his people. He goes into the boat, and he falls asleep. And what in the story is the very next thing that Jonah realizes that he's conscious of? We see the next thing that happens to Jonah from his perspective is the captain of the ship is shaking him awake and saying, get up and call out to the Lord. Get up and call out to your God. The next thing Jonah knows, the unbelieving captain is yelling him to go back to pray to the Lord he's trying to run from. He says, get up and call out the exact same words that God spoke to Jonah in verse 2. And what Jonah finds out shortly afterwards is that God had hurled a huge storm at the ship. It seems like Jonah is going to get, in a sense, what he wants. He's going to get God's deserved judgment against wicked people. God has hurled a storm so powerful that verse 5 says that all of the sailors were afraid. None of them were playing it cool or acting tough. They were all terrified. And they knew this was a supernatural storm. And so they cast lots, and God reveals to them that Jonah is the one responsible. And so, if you look at verse 8, you'll see they start launching questions at Jonah. They ask him who he is, and where he's from, and who his God is, and what his job is. And Jonah admits uh, most of uh, the answers to their questions, in saying that he's a Hebrew, that he's trying to flee from the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the earth and the sea. But if you look carefully at Jonah's answer in the questions, you can tell that Jonah, as he says this, is ashamed. And that's because if you look carefully, you'll see which question Jonah doesn't answer. It's the very first question that they ask him. So you know that Jonah heard it. What is your occupation? Jonah doesn't answer what his job is. Jonah won't say, or maybe Jonah can't say, I'm a prophet. I tell people about God's will about his power, about his goodness and his mercy and his grace. While working on this sermon, I came across a story of one man who was working uh, in another country overseas. And there he went into a business and then messed up his order. And he was very frustrated and he was very busy. He was out a lot of time and a lot of money because of what they had messed up. And he lost his cool. And finally they told him to please sit down and calm down. And they would do whatever they could to try and make it right. And while he was waiting over there, the workers started making small talk with him. Eventually, they asked him what brought him to the country, what was his job. And he couldn't find it in his heart to tell them that he was a missionary, that he was there as a representative of Jesus Christ. That's what Jonah has in this passage as well. And again, we should see a mirror, a reflection of ourselves. How often don't we also do things where if we were called out on it at the spot, we would be ashamed to admit that we are Christians, that we know Christ, that we love him, that we try and represent him in this world, that we too are prophet and priests and kings anointed with him. Likewise here, Jonah in this storm, 
has a golden opportunity to talk to people about his God and his great privilege of being one of his prophets, of knowing him better than almost anyone else. But he can't even say, instead of announcing uh, proudly how close he is to this God, he retreats, he draws back, he denies this close connection with him. We have here a clear contrast with true Christ-likeness. Because as we read this story, it's hard not to think of another story many years later in the New Testament. The story of Jesus, when he was sleeping soundly on a ship. He was woken up during a storm as well. And he wasn't afraid. He was full of confidence. Those with Jesus, they were afraid, but they didn't have to be. The wind and the waves answered to him, and he was able to instruct those with him with a cool confidence. And likewise, if you go on reading in the book of Acts, you'll see the Apostle Paul later is on a ship, and a great storm comes. And he takes the opportunity to comfort those around them and to tell them about his God. He assures everyone in Acts 12, verse 33 to 35. Now that's got to be Acts 27, I think, 33 to 35. He says, For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and you haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you, take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he, that's Paul, said this, he took some bread And he gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. That was the case for Jesus Christ, and that was the case for Paul, this wonderful opportunity to share their relationship with God. But not for Jonah. The winds and the waves weren't with Jonah, they were against him. And so, in this opportunity, he shrinks back from his God, and he admits he's the one that God is pursuing. And that's our third and our final point. When the sailors asked Jonah what they should do, he, says the Lord, he essentially says that the Lord of heaven and earth is after me, and so you have to give me to him. You need to throw me into the sea. And of course, the sailors are horrified by this, and so they try everything not to. They try and get back to shore instead. Verse 13 says, they rowed hard to get back to land. And the Hebrew word is interesting, them because it's not the usual word for rowing. It's actually the usual word for digging. It's kind of like they're saying if they can just dig their oars in a little bit deeper, maybe they can save this man's life. Maybe they can get back to shore. But it's futile. The storm gets worse and worse. And so asking God for mercy, they do what they were told. They grab Jonah and they threw him into the sea. And as they do it, they say in verse 15 that clearly they believe this is the will of the Lord. They say, Lord, you have done as you pleased. Jonah had tried to flee from God's presence. But we see in chapter 1, God wanted Jonah back. And what's amazing is that God wanted Jonah back not to destroy him or kill him, as Jonah might have thought, but rather to save him. God appoints a fish. He brings Jonah back to shore, and as we'll see next week, God speaks to him again and says, Jonah, go to Nineveh. And this is absolutely incredible. Because I don't know about you, but if I were in control here, I think Jonah would be a much shorter book. Don't you think? God had lavished so much grace on his people for so long. One of his prophets says, no, I'm going to run away. Let him go. That's what I think I would say. Who needs him? Likewise, if God was like Jonah, the story would be over after just a couple of verses. But we can praise our Lord that our God is nothing like Jonah. And we can praise him that he's nothing like us. Because God doesn't let Jonah get away. Instead, he pursued Jonah, not to crush him, but to bring him back. And this is such good news for Jonah and such good news for us 
as well. People who are a lot like Jonah. Ultimately, the good news comes from the passage we read earlier, Matthew chapter 12. Then another, the prophet that was waited for, he comes to earth and he is truly innocent. And this man, as we read, also likened himself to Jonah. The man of Jesus Christ. And we have to ask ourselves the question, we have to wonder, why in the world would Jesus do that? Jesus was a great teacher. He could have picked any illustration he wanted. He connects himself with Jonah. Why would Jesus compare himself to Jonah, this sorry excuse for a prophet? One commentator says that's the great mystery of this book. Jesus, why Jonah? Why did you want to save him? Why did you want to associate with someone so wicked? Why would he want to identify with Jonah, this unmerciful man, this sorry excuse for a prophet? is a deep mystery. As that commentator says, it's as deep a mystery as why Jesus would want to associate with you and with me. Why would he want to? He didn't have to. That's the wonder of the gospel. We are so sinful. We run from God's call and from his will. We've been doing it since the beginning. We try to hide from his presence when it's what we need above all. It's the greatest gift he can give us. We do things that make us ashamed to associate ourselves with Jesus. And yet Jesus is not ashamed to associate with us. When he was on earth, people came and asked Jesus, why do you hang around with tax collectors and sinners? And he said to them confidently, it's not the healthy that need a doctor. That's why. And so he came down to us, and he came down to Nineveh in a sense. And he said, I am the better Jonah, as we read. And yet we hated him, and he was mocked, and he was ridiculed. And as Jonah was thrown into the sea of God's wrath for his own sin, Jesus Christ came down, and he was willingly thrown into the sea of God's wrath for your sin and for mine. They dragged Jesus Christ out of the city. They nailed him to the cross. They cast him into the sea of God's wrath, uh, in a sense. They rejected him, and God rejected him too. And as he did, the waters of God's wrath grew calm. In verse 15, we read that when they took Jonah and threw him overboard, the sea stopped its raging. As we read in other translations, when they threw him overboard, the sea grew calm. Can you imagine how the sailors felt? This horrible storm, the raging sea, worse than they had ever seen before. They threw in Jonah and suddenly there was peace. This is a picture of what Jesus Christ did for us. He suffered and he died, the just for the unjust, to bring us peace. By being cast into the sea of divine wrath in our place, Jesus brought us tranquility once and for all. Our conscience no longer accuses us. We look at our many sins with sorrow, absolutely. But we don't look at our many sins with dread. We know that we won't be punished for them. We know that we can't be. Because Jesus paid it all, and it is finished. Our sins have been thrown into the depths of the sea, as we read elsewhere. Thanks to his sacrifice, we enjoy the peace that Jesus Christ purchased for us. The peace that surpasses understanding. And what's left for us to do is like the sailors at the end of chapter 1. It's simply to worship. All we can do is praise this great God, the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry ground, the one who is also merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness.
The one who loves us and the one who called us. And the one, when humanity fled, pursued us with his son. There he showed his perfect nature and how he deals with sinners like Jonah and sinners like us. And that's what we'll see throughout the rest of the book as well. Amen.